This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to the Witnesses of History podcast. And we have two sets of reports this time. From the 14th of April 1865, the assassination of President Lincoln. And from the 15th of April 1912, different survivors' accounts of the sinking of the Titanic. This is Walt Whitman's report on the murder of President Lincoln, 14th of April 1865. The assassin, John Wilkes Booth, was a professional actor, a vigorous supporter of the South and an advocate of slavery. He escaped after the murder, but was hunted down and killed in a Virginia tobacco barn 12 days later. The day, April the 14th, 1865, seems to have been a pleasant one. The moral atmosphere was pleasant too. The long storm, so dark, so fratricidal, full of blood and doubt and gloom, over and ended at last by the sunrise of such an absolute national victory, an utter breaking down of secessionism, we almost doubted our own senses. Lee had capitulated beneath the apple tree of Appomattox. The other armies, the flanges of the revolt, swiftly followed. And could it really be, then, out of all the affairs of this world of woe and passion, of failure and disorder and dismay, was there really come the confirmed, unerring sign of plan, like a shaft of blue light, of rightful rule, of God. So the day, as I say, was propitious. Early herbage, early flowers were out. I remember where I was stopping at the time, the season being advanced, there were many lilacs in full bloom. By one of those caprices that enter and give time to events without being at all a part of them, I find myself always reminded of the great tragedy of the day by the sight and odour of these blossoms. It never fails. But I must not dwell on accessories. The deed hastens. The popular afternoon paper of Washington, the little evening star, had spattered all over its third page, divided among the advertisements in a sensational manner in a hundred different places, the President and his lady will be at the theatre this evening. Lincoln was fond of the theatre. I have myself seen him there several times. I remember thinking how funny it was that he, in some respects, the leading actor in the greatest and stormiest drama known to real history stage through centuries, should sit there and be so completely interested and absorbed in these human jackstraws, moving about with their silly little gestures, foreign spirit and flatulent text. On this occasion, the theatre was crowded. Many ladies in rich and gay costumes, officers in their uniforms, many well-known citizens, young folks, the usual clusters of gaslights, the usual magnetism of so many people, cheerful with perfumes, music of violins and flutes, and overall, and saturating all, that vast vague wonder, victory, the nation's victory, the triumph of the Union, filling the air, the thought, the sense, with exhilaration, more than all perfumes. The president came betimes, and with his wife witnessed the play from the large stage boxes of the second tier, two thrown into one and profusely draped with the national flag. 
The acts and scenes of the piece, one of those singularly written compositions which have at least the merit of giving entire relief to an audience engaged in mental action or business excitements uh, during the day, as it makes not the slightest call on either the moral, emotional, aesthetic or spiritual nature. A piece, our American cousin, in which, among other characters, so-called a Yankee, certainly such a one as was never seen, or the least like it ever seen in North America, is introduced in England, and a varied folder wall of talk, plot, scenery, and such phantasmagoria as goes to make up a modern, popular drama. It progressed through perhaps a couple of its acts, when in the midst of this comedy, or tragedy, or nonsuch, or whatever it is to be called, and to offset it or finish it out, as if in nature's and the great muse's mockery of these port mimes, comes interpolated that scene not really or exactly to be described at all, for on the many hundreds who were there it seems to this hour to have left little but a passing blur, a dream, a blotch, and yet partially to be described as I now proceed to give it. There is a scene in the play representing a modern parlour in which two unprecedented English ladies are informed by the unprecedented and impossible Yankee that he is not a man of fortune and therefore undesirable for marriage-catching purposes. After which, the comments being finished, the dramatic trio make exit, leaving the stage clear for a moment. There was a pause. A hush, as it were. At this period came the murder of Abraham Lincoln. Great as that was, with all its manifold trains circling around it and stretching into the future for many a century in the politics, history, art of the new world, in point of fact, the main thing, the actual murder, transpired with the quiet and simplicity of any commonest occurrence. The bursting of a bud or pod in the growth of vegetation, for instance through the general hum following the stage pause with a change of positions came the muffled sound of a pistol shot which not one hundredth part of the audience heard at the time and yet a moment's hush somehow surely a vague startled thrill and then through the ornamented draperied starred and striped space where the president's box a sudden figure a man raises himself with hands and feet stands a moment on the railing leaps below to the stage, a distance of perhaps 14 or 15 feet, falls out of position, catching his boot heel in the copious drapery with the American flag, falls on one knee, quickly recovers himself, rises as if nothing had happened, he really sprains his ankle but unfelt then, and so the figure, Booth, the murderer, dressed in plain black broadcloth, bareheaded with a full head of glossy raven hair, and his eyes like some mad animals flashing with light and resolution, yet with a certain strange calmness, holds aloft in one hand a large knife, walks along not much back from the footlights, turns fully towards the audience, his face of statuesque beauty, lit by those basilisk eyes, flashing with desperation, perhaps insanity, launches out in a firm and steady voice the words Sic Semper Tyrannis, and then walks with neither slow nor very rapid pace diagonally across to the back of the stage and disappears. Had not all this terrible scene, making the mimic ones preposterous, had it not all been rehearsed in bank by Booth beforehand? A moment's hush, incredulous. A scream, the cry of murder, 
Mrs Lincoln leaning out of the box with ashy cheeks and lips, with involuntary cry pointing to the retreating figure. He has killed the president! And still a moment strange, incredulous suspense. And then the deluge. Then that mixture of horror, noises, uncertainty, the sound somewhere back of a horse's hooves clattering with speed, the people burst through chairs and railings and break them up. That noise adds to the queerness of the scene. There is inextricable confusion and terror. Women faint, quite feeble persons fall and are trampled on. Many cries of agony are heard. The broad stage suddenly fills to suffocation with a dense and motley crowd like some horrible carnival. The audience rush generally upon it, at least the strong men do. The actors and actresses are all there in their play costumes and painted faces with mortal fright showing through the rouge, some trembling, some in tears. The screams and calls, confused talk, redoubled, trebled. Two or three manage to pass up water from the stage to the president's box. Others try to clamber up and so on, etc. In the midst of all this... The soldiers of the President's Guard, with others suddenly drawn to the scene, burst in, some 200 altogether. They stormed the house through all the tears, especially the upper ones, inflamed with fury, literally charging the audience with fixed bayonets, muskets and pistols, shouting, Clear out! Clear out, you sons of... Such the wild scene, or a suggestion of it rather, inside the playhouse that night. Outside, too, in the atmosphere of shock and craze, crowds of people filled with frenzy, ready to seize any outlet for it, come near committing murder several times on innocent individuals. One such case was especially exciting. The infuriated crowd, through some chance, got started against one man, either for words he uttered or perhaps without any cause at all, and were proceeding at once to actually hang him on a neighbouring lamppost when he was rescued by a few heroic policemen who placed him in their midst and fought their way slowly and amid great peril towards the station house. It was a fitting episode of the whole affair. The crowd rushing and eddying to and fro, the night, the yells, the pale faces, many frightened people trying in vain to extricate themselves. The attacked man, not yet freed from the drawers of death, looking like a corpse, the silent, resolute half-dozen policemen, with no weapons but their little clubs, yet stern and steady through all those eddying swarms, made indeed a fitting side scene to the grand tragedy of the murder. They gained the station house with the protected man, whom they placed in security for the night and discharged him in the morning. And in the midst of that night pandemonium of senseless hate, infuriated soldiers, the audience and the crowd, the stage and all its actors and actresses, its paint pots, spangles and gaslights, the lifeblood from those veins, the best and sweetest of the land, drips slowly down, and death's ooze already begins its little bubbles on the lips. Such hurriedly sketched were the accompaniments of the death of President Lincoln. So suddenly and in murder and horror unsurpassed, he was taken from us. But his death was painless. We move forward 47 years and one day to the 15th of April, 1912, for several tales from survivors of the sinking of the Titanic, the unsinkable ship, which had only 1178 lifeboat spaces 
for the 2,224 people aboard. A total of 1,513 lives were lost, a high proportion of them steerage passengers. This is Harry Senior's tale. He was a fireman on the ship. I was in my bunk when I felt a bump. One man said, hello, she's been struck. I went on deck and saw a great pile of ice on the well deck before the forecastle, but we all thought the ship would last some time, and we went back to our bunks. Then one of the firemen came running down and yelled, all muster for the lifeboats. I ran on deck and the captain said, all firemen keep down on the well deck. If a man comes up, I'll shoot him. Then I saw the first lifeboat lowered. Thirteen people were on board, eleven men, two women. Three were millionaires, and one was Ismay, the managing director of the White Star Line, who was a survivor. Then I rang up to the hurricane deck and helped to throw one of the collapsible boats onto the lower deck. I saw an Italian woman holding two babies. I took one of them and made the woman jump overboard with the other, while I did the same with the one that I was carrying. When I came to the surface, the baby in my arms was dead. I saw the woman strike out in good style, but a boiler burst on the Titanic and started a big wave. When the woman saw that wave, she gave up. Then as the child was dead, I let it sink too. I swam around for about half an hour and was swimming on my back when the Titanic went down. I tried to get aboard a boat, but some chap hit me over the head with an oar. There were too many in her. I got around to the other side of the boat and climbed in. Harold Bride was the wireless operator. Here's his tale. From aft came the tunes of the band. It was a ragtime tune. I don't know what. Then there was autumn. I went to the place I'd seen in the collapsible boat on the boat deck and to my surprise I saw the boat and the men still trying to push it off. I guess there wasn't a sailor in the crowd. They couldn't do it. I went up to them and was just lending a hand when a large wave came awash of the deck. The big wave carried the boat off. I had hold of an oarlock and I went with it. The next I knew I was in the boat. But that was not all. I was in the boat and the boat was upside down and I was under it. And I remember realising I was wet through and that whatever happened I must not breathe for I was underwater. I knew I had to fight for it and I did. How I got out from under the boat I do not know but I felt a breath of air at last. There were men all around me, hundreds of them. The sea was dotted with them, all depending on their life belts. I felt I simply had to get away from the ship. She was a beautiful sight then. Smoke and sparks were rushing out of her funnel. There must have been an explosion, but we heard none. We only saw the big stream of sparks. The ship was turning gradually on her nose, just like a duck that goes for a dive. I had only one thing on my mind, to get away from the suction. The band was still playing. I guess all of them went down. They were playing Autumn then. I swam with all my might. I suppose I was 150 feet away when the Titanic, on her nose, with her afterquarter sticking straight up in the air, began to settle, slowly. When at last the waves washed over her rudder, there wasn't the least bit of suction I could feel. She must have kept going just so slowly as she had been. I felt after a little while like sinking. I was very cold. I saw a boat of some kind near me and put all my strength into an effort to swim to it. It was hard work. I was all done when a hand reached out from the boat and pulled me aboard. It was our same collapsible. 
the same crowd was on it. There was just room for me to roll on the edge. I lay there not caring what happened. Somebody sat on my legs. They were wedged in between slats and were being wrenched. I had not the heart left to ask the man to move. It was a terrible sight all round, men swimming and sinking. I lay where I was, letting the man wrench my feet out of shape. Others came near. Nobody gave them a hand. The bottom-up boat already had more men than it could hold, and it was sinking. At first the larger waves splashed over my clothing, then they began to splash over my head, and I had to breathe when I could. As we floated around on our capsized boat and I kept straining my eyes for a ship's light, somebody said, Don't the rest of you think we ought to pray? The man who had made the suggestion asked what the religion of the others was. Each man called out his religion. One was a Catholic, one a Methodist, one a Presbyterian. It was decided the most appropriate prayer for all was the Lord's Prayer. We spoke it over in chorus with the man who first suggested that we pray as the leader. Some splendid people saved us. They had a right upside boat and it was full to capacity, yet they came to us and loaded us all into it. I saw some lights off in the distance and knew a steamship was coming to our aid. And finally, Mrs. D. H. Bishop's tale from a lifeboat. We did not begin to understand the situation till we were perhaps a mile or more distant from the Titanic. Then we could see the rows of lights along the decks begin to slant gradually upward from the bow. Very slowly, the lines of light began to point downward at a greater and greater angle. The sinking was so slow that you could not perceive the lights of the deck changing their position. The slant seemed to be greater about every quarter of an hour. That was the only difference. In a couple of hours, though, she began to go down more rapidly. Then the fearful sight began. The people in the ship were just beginning to realise how great their danger was. When the forward part of the ship dropped suddenly at a faster rate so that the upward slope became marked, there was a sudden rush of passengers on all the decks towards the stern. It was like a wave. We could see the great black mass of people in the steerage sweeping to the rear part of the boat and breaking through into the upper decks. At the distance of about a mile, we could distinguish everything through the night, which was perfectly clear. We could make out the increasing excitement on board the boat as the people rushing to and fro caused the deck lights to disappear and reappear as they passed in front of them. The panic went on, it seemed, for an hour. Then suddenly the ship seemed to shoot up out of the water and stand there perpendicularly. It seemed to us that it stood upright in the water for a full four minutes. Then it began to slide gently downwards. Its speed increased as it went down head first so that the stern shot down with a rush. The lights continued to burn till it sank. We could see the people packed densely in the stern till it was gone. As the ship sank, we could hear the screaming a mile away. Gradually it became fainter and fainter and died away. Some of the lifeboats that had room for one more might have gone to their rescue, but it would have meant that those who were in the water would have swarmed aboard and sunk it. You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matias. 
www.soundimage.org.